the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on a very under, rather, a very sunny beautiful sky. Today we're going to talk with Harold and Kimmy Otterly. They are Oasis hosts for Life Impact Ministries. It's a tremendous uh, ministry that provides respite care for those who are in full-time ministry, pastors, missionaries. Um, uh, We'll talk more about that when they join us later this hour. We're also going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's a senior counsel for First Liberty Institute. We're going to talk about developments in two major religious liberty cases that illustrate the growing problem and how to respond. So that's coming up later in the program as well. Well, yesterday, the breaking news story at about 530 Eastern time that caught us late in the afternoon uh, was the fact that a special counsel has been uh, appointed to delve into Uh, Russian interference in the U.S. presidential election. With only an hour's notice, the Deputy Attorney General of Justice, Rod Rosenstein, he appointed Robert Mueller, or Mueller, as many uh, pronounce it. I'm not really certain which is correct, the German pronunciation or the one I hear most often. He is, however, the special counsel for the Russian investigation, given political blowback over the president's firing of the FBI director, James Comey. Rosenstein uh, stated that his, uh, his decision... Uh, was not the result of any uh, findings that criminal uh, activity had been uh, committed or any prosecution warranted, but rather due to the unique situation, and that he felt that the public interest warranted a special prosecutor outside the normal FBI chain of command. The Wall Street Journal responded by calling it the special counsel mistake, arguing that Rosenstein caved to the political pressure from Democrats, giving them the ability to bedevil the Trump administration, possibly for the next four years. Now, I mentioned uh, just briefly yesterday on the program that uh, the new um, the former deputy attorney general, the new prosecutor in this case, really has uh, sole latitude uh, in how this is going to proceed. He can either uh, decide this is going to be very narrowly pursued in which the issues that were originally raised will be addressed and uh, hopefully resolved, or it can be very wide and there can be rabbit trails that lead to things that are not directly related to the initial investigation. And we've certainly seen that with special prosecutors in the past. So this could, uh, this could, as uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal put it, bedevil the president uh, and the administration for the next four years, or it could be resolved in a matter of months. What we do know, at least at this point, is that the former um, FBI, uh, the the uh, special counsel, I should say, um, that he is highly respected on both sides of the political aisle. Uh, that's not a guarantee that the outcome that he announces at some point in the future, one would at least hope, uh, will be accepted by both sides of the political aisle. Uh, we know that um, the NSA director was someone who was highly respected as being a man of uh, complete integrity by both sides of the aisle. When, however, he came out in favor of uh, one of the actions of the president, then his Integrity was um, was called into question. So one can never be certain that uh, even those who are highly praised will be believed at the end of the day. Uh, my prayer is that this would be a an investigation that would get to the heart of the issues that most concern the American people that will um, uh, wrest it from the the hands of those who want to make political points on either side of the 
uh, of the uh, partisan aisle and that we will ultimately be able to resolve the most important questions and that the, uh, the Congress can do the people's business. Now, my understanding is the committees in both the House and the Senate that are investigating various aspects of this will continue. They may be hampered to some degree, given this new uh, investigation that will depend on uh, the uh, the course that is taken in this case. But nonetheless, uh, those investigations will continue. But it does take the larger questions and the larger responsibility out of their hands. And hopefully they can move forward with the people's business uh, uh, in the days to come. Well, President Trump issued a short response late yesterday saying there was no collusion between my campaign and any foreign entity. I look forward to this matter concluding quickly. Well, that's wishful thinking. I, I hope it's resolved quickly, but more importantly, accurately. The explosion of the media, particularly uh, the mainstream media, should be no surprise as talk of impeachment is already being bandied about. In fact, the Democrats are uh, sort of testing how that would play out in the public, uh, even though there hasn't been any evidence presented that a crime was committed on the part of the uh, president. Um, and, con- and the investigation leading into collusion has been for about a, a year. Congress, of course, continues to want Comey to testify in their ongoing investigation into the uh, influence that Russia had on the election due to Michael Flynn's admission that he had lied to the vice president about having had contact with the Russians and on and on and on it goes. Uh, again, my prayer and hope is that uh, the motivation would be to resolve this issue, that the truth would be um, made known and that we can move forward. Whatever the uh, the truth happens to be, we can move forward in a way that's in the best interest of the country rather than uh, a, a means to score points from one political side of the uh, ledger or the other. We also learned today that Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein knew that the FBI Director James Comey was going to be removed before he penned that now famous memo that was cited by the White House as rationale for the firing. Uh, the Democratic senators said today after a briefing uh, with the senior Department of Justice official, now, Rosenstein, who was uh, a day earlier named a special counsel to oversee the Russian probe, um, uh, briefed all the U.S. senators on Capitol Hill earlier today. Well, coming out of that briefing, lawmakers said that he revealed that President Trump's decision preceded his letter. Well, that was uh, made clear by the president some time ago when he made a statement that he had already decided this is what he was going to do. And now the question is whether or not uh, this letter was uh, to be presented as some sort of cover, although there didn't seem to be an effort to cover up on the part of the president making statements the day later. So, again, what do we make of it? Senator Claire McCaskill out of uh, Missouri said he knew that Comey was going to be removed prior to him writing his memo. Senator Dick Durbin also said Rosenstein learned on May the 8th that Trump was going to terminate Comey. Uh, he wrote the memo on the 9th. The memo is a critical factor, we're being told, as the Trump administration initially cited that assessment in its explanation for Comey's firing last week, Rosenstein had uh, castigated Comey over his handling of the Hillary Clinton email probe. And on Thursday, Senator Lindsey Graham told reporters after the briefing that uh, Rosenstein did find Comey's actions inappropriate with regard to the Clinton probe. But the revelations about the timeline dovetail with more recent statements from the president that he planned to fire Comey regardless of any DOJ recommendation. So, again, that will be a. Uh, a major source of discussion, speculation, and so on in the days ahead. As for me and, well, my house, we're going to wait until the investigation gives us some concrete evidence that we can say yay or nay, this or that happened, and uh, determine who's going to be held accountable. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, 
uh, some intel officials who are scoffing at what they call the hype over the reported sharing of information with Russians and much, much more. Also, later this hour, we're going to talk with a couple who are Oasis hosts for Life Impact Ministries. Uh, Harold and Kimmy Otterly, and I'm most certain that I'm probably not pronouncing their name correctly. I'll get that <laughs> straightened out when they join me in studio here in just a bit. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In an effort to uh, gain some perspective and uh, different points of view on uh, some of the controversies swirling in Washington, I noted uh, that the Washington Times reported that some of America's top intelligence officials, they are unnamed in this story. So I'm always a little bit skeptical of unnamed sources. But some of America's top intelligence officials are expressing frustration at the wave of hysteria that's greeted reports that the president may have shared sensitive intelligence with top Russian diplomats last week. With some saying a handful of news organizations are guilty of hyping what amounts to a non-story. Critics of the story, which has consumed official Washington, say Mr. Trump was within his rights as commander-in-chief to share classified intelligence as he sees fit. Yet they also say the criticism overlooks, rather, how the president of the previous administration and his top aide shared intelligence with Russia in the fight against the Islamic State group and faced several crises of their own with damaging intelligence leaks. People are making way too big a deal of this, one senior U.S. intelligence official told The Washington Times, again unnamed. Uh, after a report that Mr. Trump jeopardized a crucial Islamic State intelligence source reportedly cultivated by Israel by revealing highly classified information. First of all, it was the Obama administration that started the policy of intelligence sharing with the Russians about the specific problem of ISIS in Syria. And there was no secret that such sharing was going on, said the official who spoke only on condition of anonymity. Secondly, the uh, president can say whatever he wants because he's the president, assuming he has something sensitive that's entirely up to his judgment. Well, technically, that is the case. Whether or not it's in the best interest of our allies is another question uh, that uh, they go on to address further down uh, in that uh, uh, that analysis. Well, the president said that no politician in history treated has been treated worse or more unfairly. A bit of hyperbole? We'll see in just a moment. He told graduates at the Coast Guard Academy, look at the ways I've been treated lately, especially by the media. No politician in history has been treated worse or more unfairly. First of all, I'm not sure a graduation is the appropriate place to take on such issues. But nonetheless, the comment caught the attention of some history buffs, and they offered a little bit of background. Now, David Blanchett, who's a correspondent and a historian, uh, points out that when the president uh, referred to his battle with the press by saying that Abraham Lincoln and many of our great presidents fought with the media, he wasn't making fake news. No president ever cracked down on the press more than did, well, Abraham Lincoln. According to Harold Holzer, he's the author of Lincoln and the Power of the Press, The War for Public Opinion. Winner of the 2015 Gilder Lehrman Lincoln Prize for the finest scholarly work on Abraham Lincoln or the Civil War era. Lincoln was far more aggressive against the press, but he also had an an exit. An existential crisis facing the United States and its future. That's the fundamental difference. And there are fundamental differences here. Well, Holzer, the former chair of the Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation and a Lincoln scholar and author, discussed uh, his book before a capacity crowd in October of 2014 at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum. The book details how the Lincoln administration shut down several newspapers during the Civil War, including one in Chicago, for printing what many at the time argued were treasonous statements. Holzer said this week, 
week that Lincoln's actions remain controversial to this day. Did he have the right to suspend freedom of the press and freedom of the speech, which uh, both of those freedoms are enshrined in the Bill of Rights? That remains an open question that scholars continue to debate. His decision to treat some Democratic newspapers and editors as traitors, Holzer said. He had to uh, draw a line between dissent and and, uh, treason, and he did it in a way favorable to his administration and the pursuit of quashing the rebellion. Well, so cracking down on the press, which Lincoln did much more aggressively than Donald Trump, who only does so rhetorically, can possibly be justified. But we don't want to give Donald Trump any ideas about arresting the editors and newspapers or shutting down printing presses, end quote. Well, on Friday, according to the Associated Press, um, including the New York Times and CNN, were blocked from joining an informal, on-the-record White House press briefing, which, of course, is something quite different than what Lincoln did. They just were not invited or included. But Holzer said the media was completely and openly partisan in Lincoln's day, much like it is today, I I think I could persuasively argue, with Democratic and Republican newspapers, and that Lincoln followed the Republican press with the same intensity with which Donald Trump watched Fox News and Breitbart. Holzer added that Lincoln was also a master at manipulating the media with leaked stories, courting the favor of certain editors and releasing private letters to the press. Not that I think Donald Trump, he goes on to say, tweets particularly... Uh, But his tweets are similarly revolutionary in that they bypass traditional media and then traditional media is obliged to cover the tweets just like they had to cover Lincoln's public letters. You have to give both of these people credit where credit is due, and that is in mastering the art of communication. Well, he goes on from there, uh, outlining and detailing the uh, battle between President Abraham Lincoln and the press and some of the controversial decisions he made at that time that are still unresolved in terms of public opinion Uh, today in the 21st century. Well, worried about the fallout of uh, calling for the president's impeachment, Democrats are poised to poll test the idea. Strategists are racing to figure out whether it's politically wise to call for uh, President Trump's impeachment as one bombshell revelation after another about ties to Russia is forcing candidates from the state and or rather the Senate and the House of Representatives to consider the question far sooner than anyone had expected. Well, it's uh, certainly premature since we're talking at this point about allegations, and it doesn't seem, even if the allegations were proven to be accurate, that they rise to the level of uh, acts of treason. But nonetheless, they're being poll tested at this point, and we'll follow the story to see what uh, what happens. Well, U.S. Senator Ron Wyden, in the meantime, joined 10 other Democratic senators in calling for an investigation into whether Attorney General Jeff Sessions violated his promise to recuse himself from the investigation into Russia's allegations, uh, rather alleged interference in the 2016 presidential election. The 11 senators asked Inspector General Michael Horowitz to investigate after Sessions wrote a letter to the president recommending the firing of FBI Director James Comey on May the 9th. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein also wrote a letter to Trump, critical of Comey, citing Comey's handling of the investigation. Comey was leading the Russia investigation, at least as the figurehead at the time he was fired. It is clear that Attorney General Sessions had an active role in the termination of Director Comey, the senator's uh, letter said. This seems to be in direct violation of the attorney general's recusal from any existing or future investigations of any matter relating in any way to the campaigns of President of the United States. Uh, Trump told NBC News he had already made up his mind about firing Comey before receiving that letter asking for advice, apparently, from uh, his cabinet members. We'll see where this investigation, should it develop, uh, goes. But again, uh, Congressman, or rather Senator Wyden, 
uh, one of the, the leaders of that call for an investigation into the attorney general. One wonders if anything constructive will come out of this um, uh, this Congress, at least leading up to the midterm elections, given all the uh, controversies that are swirling around uh, and are yet to be resolved. Again, if you're looking for things to fill your prayer time, you might want to pray for the leaders of this constitutional republic who clearly need our help uh, in uh, not seeking their own interests or the interests of their own political parties. And I'm talking about both sides of the aisle, but seeking to do what's right for the uh, for the public they uh, represent and to uphold the Constitution they took an oath to uphold. One can only hope that we will have statesmen and leaders who make that their primary goal rather than uh, trying to up the other uh, party. In just a few moments, we're going to break for a conversation with uh, the Oasis hosts of Life Impact Ministries and tell you uh, what they do. And I want to encourage you to make note because there may be opportunity to uh, refer someone or if you are a pastor or in church leadership, perhaps you're uh, a missionary. Uh, this is a ministry you want to uh, to add to your Rolodex, if I can uh, harken back to an era when they were popular. So we're going to do that in just a few moments. But I also want to remind you in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's senior counsel for First Liberty Institute. We're going to talk about two um, major religious liberty cases uh, that illustrate the challenges that many face in the public and private sector in simply living out their faith in the public square. In one case, for example, it wasn't even a matter of uh, confrontation. It was a simple phrase I'll be praying for you. There was no complaint from the person to whom that comment was made, a co-worker who happened, by the way, to attend the same church as the individual who made the comment. But the school district said, no, we'll have none of that. Another is a judge, a judge who has uh, opened up the uh, courtroom so that before uh, hearings begin, um, someone is given an opportunity to engage in prayer. All are welcome, not just Christians, but Muslims, Jews, and one atheist actually applied but didn't show up for the training. But anyway, we're going to talk about those cases and how they illustrate what is a growing uh, list of challenges that we need to be aware of and what to do if you find yourself in a situation where you question whether or not this rises to the level where you need legal representation. Uh, So we'll get into that later in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome back. You are listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and we are glad to have you with us because we have a couple of special people with me here in studio. Harold and Kimmy Otterly are Oasis hosts for Life Impact Ministries. Um, Harold is also uh, serves as pastor of pastoral care at South Lake, uh, South Lake Foursquare Church in Tualatin and a hospice uh, chaplain in uh, with Brighton Hospice in Tigard. So we are delighted to have both of you with us. Thank you. Thanks. Privilege. Now, I know the two of you have served in ministry for, for many years and are familiar with the challenges that come with the, the level of responsibility that comes with leading as a shepherd in a flock. Uh, I want to begin by just telling us a little of your story. You have served as a pastor in a church and loved uh, the, the idea of serving a congregation, but found that you were faced with a challenge that challenged your notion of whether or not to continue. That's right. And we, at that point, got very discouraged, considered just, we were in Boston, we were considered just packing up and coming back home and starting over. And then God brought this couple into our lives that had a ministry of caring for pastors. And they, we went to them planning on figuring out how we're going to resign from our church. We left saying, God has called us for such a time as this. Mm. And it was a wonderful 
thing of how our church came together and and eventually we were called back here it was all on a positive note Mm -hmm. and it just taught us a wonderful lesson of what god can do to bring healing in a Mm -hmm. church what you described is not all that uncommon in those who serve in church leadership either find that they're facing burnout or there's major conflict in the church Mm -hmm. and the natural response is i don't see a way to resolve this maybe i should step aside but in this brief encounter that you had, and this was just a day or so that yes. you met with this couple, you were able to to see that God's hand was to place you back there, and ultimately it was the the conflict was resolved. Yeah. That's right. Right. Yeah. Now, how common is it for um, for pastors and church workers, missionaries, and others to find that that connection that helps them? to think through, to pray through, to find the encouragement they need to continue in ministry or to even to seek direction in what to do next? Well, I I find that it is difficult. It is difficult for um, pastors to take that time to find a connection where they feel safe. Um, And also missionaries, um, they invest a whole lot of time into preparing to be on the mission field, um, as all Christian workers do. And uh, so it, it, it is a hard thing for them because sometimes to show that humanity piece that they have is really hard um, and they need a safe place to come to. And a lot of people, a lot of pastors and missionaries just end up quitting. Mm-hmm. They give up, say enough, enough, enough is enough. And it's wasted resources when they're resolvable conflicts, if they could just sit down with someone who Mm -hmm. could walk them through. Mm -hmm. And in this ministry we're in with Life Impact, what we do is we offer coaching to people on how to work through issues in their life. In fact, we've just painted a picture that I think is more common than most of us imagine, where there's a point at which an individual is confronted with, do I continue or do I take a different course. They believe they're called to ministry. They know that's the case. They know that God has uniquely equipped them to lead. And yet they're at a crossroads uh, and trying to think through and work through what to do next can be very challenging. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, Life Impact Ministries, uh, based in, in Bend, uh, provides oasis homes to care for pastors and missionaries through these personal retreats, life coaching, as you mentioned, and sort of a de- debriefing period. Let's just talk about what uh, what this ministry is about and how it began. Well, it started with Dave and Sherry Grisson. They were um, missionaries serving in Eastern Europe for about 30 years, and they saw the tremendous need of pastors, missionaries, Christian workers having a safe place to come. And they, when they God called them back here to Oregon where they were based, they started the first uh, oasis in Sun River, Oregon. And uh, then that grew, and Harold and I were about the fourth uh, oasis to start up with them, and now it's grown quite a bit. Well, in fact, there are now 12 locations. There are five here in the United States, uh, and one in China, seven abroad and, and one even in China. Yeah. Right. So how did the two of you end up serving others who find themselves where you were when God called you to go back to the church, see uh, resolution and healing, uh, and then come back to the Pacific Northwest? So the, how did we get into this position? <laughs> yes. Wait, wait, wait. yes. <laughs> Just kind of trace your trajectory from, from your church where things are resolved to where you are now. We had talked after that event and we had moved back here. We'd sometimes find ourselves saying, Maybe someday we could do what that couple did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we thought about maybe someday we'd start a nonprofit. And and then a remarkable thing happened. I was doing my training as a chaplain at Legacy Emanuel Hospital. 
uh, our director had the five of us who were training write down that day a dream that we had in our life. I wrote about this dream. I came home that night, and I told Kimmy and I were going to have dinner out, and I told her what I wrote about, and much to my amazement, (laughs) she said... Well, the Lord told me that morning to just take some time to dream again. And we mm-hmm. had gone through some really hardships in our family life and, and some medical, really huge medical crisis. And so the Lord said, dream again. I want you to trust me. And so I wrote down my dream is wanting to open my home. Harold and I have a gift of hospitality and wanting to share and encourage and um, encourage others to not throw in the towel. And um, we were just like, wow, God gave us that assignment on the same day to talk about it, <laughs> to write about it. Um, and then the Lord networked us with uh, Dave and Sherry Grisson through their daughter at one point, and um, we just were really blessed to come alongside of um, Dave and Sherry and provide this uh, ministry for these pastors and missionaries, and it's been a blessing these like eight, after, nine years. After we moved back, about a year later, I had a massive brain hemorrhage, mm. and um, that threw everything into a tizzy, and through it, God brought something new out of it, not only transitioning me to being a chaplain, but also to do this ministry of caring for pastors and missionaries. And it's just put things in a whole different perspective. Now, this is a ministry that's available to humanitarian aid workers, missionaries, pastors, other Christian leaders who need a personal retreat to gain physical, spiritual, and emotional strength while processing some unresolved issues and crucial issues. Describe for us what this oasis is for them. I'm coming off the field as a missionary. I'm a pastor trying to work through where where God would send me next. What is this oasis like when someone comes? Go ahead. Well, our, our folks come um, to the Oasis for many, many different reasons. Um, but when they come, we are there to serve them in what they need. We don't have an agenda for them. So we are there to help them debrief. We will um, take time to just listen to their story um, as they're trying to process either where they're going to go in the future or something that has happened in the past. Maybe it's trauma uh, maybe it's a, a, a conflict that they had on the field or in the church, and they're just needing a safe place to unload and talk about this. Um, we provide, many of our oases provide uh, meals, um, but each oasis is a flavor of its own mm-hmm. and just because each host is unique in themselves also. We do it in a bed and breakfast kind of style uh-huh. where they come and feel like, they're at a bed and breakfast, but uh, we just make a restful environment for them. And it's all about making them feeling like they can really be restful and encouraged. Mm. Now, you mentioned um, earlier that you have provided life coaching uh, as as they're debriefing or or looking for a place of peace. What does that look like in the context of those who come to one of these oases? We'll initially sit down with them when they first come over dinner and find out what they hope to get out of the weekend or the few days they come, and then we craft the time around that and come up with the plan of how to meet and how to talk and let let them set the agenda, and we just serve them in that way, and we listen and encourage and pray with them. We ask also pointed questions that get them to think about where they are mm-hmm. and what are the blocks, and it's amazing how the Holy Spirit just comes and ministers in those times where he gives us words of insight or discernment and um, and then just how God unfolds like the pieces of a puzzle coming together. 
it's like, oh, aha, you know, I, yeah. I see this is the next step I need to take. We're talking with Harold and Kimmy Otterly. They are Oasis hosts for Life Impact Ministries. Uh, pastor Harold also serves as pastor of pastoral care at Southway's, uh, South Lake Foursquare Church in Tualatin and is a hospice chaplain uh, at Brighton Hospice in Tigard. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. With me in studio are two very special people, Harold and Kimmy Otterly. They are are Oasis hosts, and if you've just joined us, we'll explain once again what that is. But they work with Life Impact Ministries. Uh, Pastor Harold also serves at uh, South Lake Foursquare Church in Tualatin and is a hospice chaplain. Uh, we're talking about this Oasis care for those who are involved in ministry, whether that takes the form of, a form of a missionary or pastor, uh, those who are in uh, leadership in, in the Christian uh, circles and humanitarian aid workers, people who need a place of respite and mm-hmm. and care. And um, this ministry, uh, Life Impact Ministries, provides that, that that opportunity. We were talking during the break, and I was commenting that uh, one of the things I appreciate about this ministry is that it acknowledges the, a need for a season to perhaps step away for a, a period of time. It doesn't always have to be as a result of conflict. It might mm-hmm. just be a need for respite and rest and uh, maybe to talk with someone who understands the dynamics of leadership and the challenges and so on. So this really provides an opportunity that uh, is fairly rare, I would think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk a, a bit about um, folks who come to you. Are they coming just from this area, the Portland metro area, or do you have people come from uh, various places around the country? Around the country and around the world. Um, Missionaries that maybe aren't from the Northwest, but they are going to be seeing some family members or churches here in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. They come for a visit, and they'll come and stay with us and end up doing a retreat with us. Uh, they find out. Sometimes people will specifically fly here just because it's exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah. So if I'm a, if I'm a pastor in Albany and I'm looking for a place of oasis and respite, or maybe looking for a little bit of, uh, of life coaching or to debrief, um, where would I begin and, and sort of walk me through the process? You'd go to our website and there it shows the 12 locations that we have and the person would decide which one they want to go to. We have two or three here in Oregon. And um, they could uh, book a, a, a request online, and then the hosts contact them and confirm the time, and, and they set it up that way and go from there. Mm-hmm. So is it a, a private room setting, or are they with uh, meeting with others, or describe what that would be like for someone coming? Well, for our Oasis, we have one um, that's located right now in Tualatin. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their own, basically, suite, their own cottage um, they have their private bath, they have their own room and, um, we just do one couple at a time. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's what our Oasis is set up for. And so they are free to, uh, spend time alone. If they're looking for some mm-hmm. additional resource, you're also there to help them. Exactly. So we set ahead of time when they would like to meet, um, you know, if they're having some things they want to process, then we'll first meet with them on the evening and, you know, get a little more acquainted with each other and then proceed about when they would like to have the continuing um, sessions with them. Um, so they have time to rest and refuel, to go for walks. Maybe they want to do some sort of recreation of a hike somewhere. Mm-hmm. And our guests totally set the agenda. One time we had a young 
pastoral couple from Beaverton, and they hardly talked with us at all. But what they wrote afterwards was amazing, all that happened just by their being at our little retreat center. That's how that worked out that time. Mm. We usually do a fair amount of dialogue, but sometimes there's very little. They just need a place to be and to connect. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the cost to spending time, and what's the average length uh, length of time uh, that uh, folks would come and take advantage of this oasis? Well, the minimum is two nights stay. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say most couples stay two nights. Um, some have stayed longer, up to a week, um, but most only stay two nights. Um, and a lot of them have children, so it's hard to get away. Um, and the cost is a donation basis. We do have a suggested donation, um, and, and that's the way all the OACs work. Our it, suggested donation is $85 for a night. Which is eminently affordable. You know, we were talking during the break. I asked if uh, if churches ever send their pastor or missionaries that they're sponsoring. Maybe they come home for mm-hmm. a short period of time. And do churches send uh, people who work among them uh, for a season of respite at one of these oases? And you mentioned that that that's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've we've had a number of of uh, individuals who have who have really wanted to bless bless their pastor or a, a minister that they care about um, or a missionary, um, and they specifically said we want to send you here and this is our gift to you. Um, so it has been a blessing to see the the body of Christ reach out and care for ministers in that way. Now you mentioned earlier that when you were in ministry, there was a season when. Uh, discouragement and conflict in the church might have resulted in your walking away as much as you loved ministry and still do at that juncture. That was a real possibility. You had an opportunity to sit down and talk with a couple that were able to encourage you and Mm -hmm. to help you recognize the direction that God was calling you to. What do you say to anyone who might be listening now? And I'd like each of you to respond uh, that's listening and thinking, if I could just get uh, a day or two away, if I just had a place I could go to, um, to just hear from the Lord and maybe talk with someone outside of my specific congregation that might understand the challenges I face. What would you say to them today? I would encourage them to go to our life to our website, lifeimpactministries.net, and and just see if one of our oasis would fit for what they'd like to do. And a person can even contact the home that they look at and ask questions or talk to them on the phone. We're all very uh, down to earth and just um, try to make it work for whoever wants to come, make it fit for them, for who they are. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's very crucial that you, you reach out because being isolated is not going to bring health. And so connecting with someone who understands the challenges uh, and to pray with you and to help you just work through the issues mm-hmm. is so key. Now, I, I can imagine there are some pastor's wives. There might be some uh, women who are married to people who are in ministry, mm-hmm. um, and they see this as, yes, this is an answer for, for our family, but might find a little resistance. You know, how do I break away from, from the leadership? How do I break away from the pulpit uh, to spend some time in respite? What would you say um, to the men who are listening who might be more reluctant than their wives to say, yes, this is precisely what we need to do? I would say to just Get your calendar out and find a date and make it work. 
because these things don't usually work if you don't plan for it. Mm -hmm. But you just do it and and you come and you end up finding this is exactly what I needed to do is sit back and step away from my ministry. That's what Jesus did. Mm-hmm. And if he did it, we certainly need to do it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, to find a place that recognizes I am here to seek the Lord. I'm here to hear what he has to say, to seek direction, um, to take a, a season of rest yep. uh, where you don't have the, you know, kind of the hotel interruptions and the common things that you might run into under mm-hmm. in different settings. Again, I want to just emphasize that uh, this tremendous ministry, Life Impact Ministries, uh, they're located in 12 areas, uh, five here in the United States, seven of them are abroad, one even in China. <laughs> That's just a, a, a fascinating thing to consider. You can learn more at their website, lifeimpactministries.net. And I would encourage you, if you are not in ministry, you're not a pastor or a missionary, that you make note of this website because my guess is this is going to be handy for you and your church at some point in the future. If you know someone who's involved in ministry and they need a time of respite, would you pass it on to them or suggest, you know what, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to give you a gift, a couple of uh, nights away uh, to just refresh. Again, lifeimpactministries.net is where you can get all the important details. Thank you both for, um, for ministering to those who minister in our community and recognizing their need for just time away. And I thank you for coming in and talking with us here today. It's been thank our you. pleasure. It's been a real Amy. delight. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break for news and traffic here at the top of the weather. That would be the hour. I'm, I'm a little <laughs> distracted by the weather, I think. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I know they gave me a second hour. Can you believe it? Five minutes after five o'clock, Clark Hilton is engineering, James Blinn producing, and we're glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice. He's senior counsel for First Liberty Institute. We're going to talk about uh, developments in two major religious liberty cases that really illustrate the challenges uh, that are growing um, that we face if we want to live out our faith in the public square. We're not talking about obnoxious people doing obnoxious things. We're talking about people just living out their faith in a way that uh, is honoring to Christ um, and being and finding opposition to that. So that will be uh, later in at the bottom of this hour. Meanwhile, looking back at some of the news over the past uh, eight decades, Congress has gradually relinquished their lawmaking role and they've left it to the administrative state. And by that, I mean agencies. They determine uh, the law is passed, obviously, by Congress. But uh, when Congress doesn't have the uh, political will um, to get specific about how things should be done, they leave it to administrators, and oftentimes they essentially set law uh, that may or may not uh, uh, comport with what Congress actually passed. Well, Senator Mike Lee, he's a Republican out of Utah, said during an event hosted at the Federalist Society's fifth annual executive branch review conference, all of which you probably didn't need to know, he said that many Americans now feel that they are not in control of their own government. The administrative state, as he calls it, is designed to be ins- insulated from the will of the people. So these are unaccountable, unelected bureaucrats who are making policy. Now, the Utah senator said that one way that he's working to combat this phenomenon is through an initiative he started. It's called Article One Project. And he says, our goal is to develop and advance and hopefully enact an agenda of structural reforms that will strengthen Congress by reclaiming the legislative powers that have been ceded to the executive branch. Now, part of that ceding to um, uh, the executive branch, and for that matter, the unelected uh, bureaucracy that I made reference to, 
is a, a, a deliberate uh, effort on the part of members of Congress who simply do not want to spend the political ca- capital persuading the American people uh, that uh, a thing should be done in their best interest. And this is a sort of an easy way around uh, public opinion. Well, Lee said that lawmakers are to blame for this shift in power, as has uh, have I. He said that we are not, in fact, the victims. We are the perpetrators. We have done this willfully because it makes our job easier. Uh, it is a whole lot easier and less politically risky to have somebody else do the lawmaking than it is to do the lawmaking yourself, because, you know, reelection is always uh, in the back of every politician's mind in Washington. Now, there are several pieces to this legislation uh, that could help address executive overreach. Number one, the RAINS Act. It's R-E-I-N-S, the RAINS Act, which uh, has actually passed the House but is yet to pass the Senate, where it's always a little bit more difficult, would make progress in regaining ground um, uh, Congress has lost Uh, The proposed law would require both congressional and presidential approval of major rules which have an economic impact of one hundred million dollars or more. As it is as it stands now, agencies are engaged in rulemaking and they can do so without any oversight at all. Under this law, he goes on to say the specialized know how within each agency would still be allowed to contribute to the regulatory process, but with oversight. Uh, Ultimately, Congress would be responsible for every major regulation. Uh, that went into effect. Now, this would make it easier for American voters to know who is to blame for bad policies. As things currently stand, lawmakers can have it both ways. Uh, The second uh, piece of legislation is the Separation of Powers Restoration Act. Now, he suggested to help restore congressional authority, this um, would be helpful. And by the way, that also passed the House in 2016. In an op-ed in The Hill, Representative John Ratcliffe out of Texas warned that The practice of administrative agencies engaging in de facto lawmaking was exacerbated by the 1984 Supreme Court decision, Chevron USA Inc. versus Natural Resources Defense Council, which determined that courts must defer to agencies' interpretation of ambiguous laws as long as their interpretation is deemed reasonable. Now, it may contradict what Congress intended. It may conflict with what uh, Congress intended. But the agency has power over Congress in implementing the laws they themselves passed. Well, the Separation of Powers Restoration Act, which uh, Radcliffe has introduced in the House again this year, would reverse the 1984 Supreme Court decision that established the Chevron Doctrine, placing the power to determine ambiguous laws back into the hands of the judiciary. Well, the bill would end the dysfunctional status quo that tilts the legal plan field in favor of bureaucrats who pass the legislation to place federal law in the hands of legislators and the power to write and the judge's power to interpret just as the Constitution. Um, then there's the third part, Agency Accountability Act. This is the third piece of legislation, and it will do exactly what the name implies. It will hold agencies accountable. Currently, that is not the case. Now, the act which has been introduced into the House would make federal agencies accountable by directing most fines, fees and unappropriated proceeds to the Treasury instead of letting federal agencies keep the money and then spend it as they see fit. There's, again, accountability. Now, right now, agencies have the ability to use funds received through fines, fees, and proceeds. In other words, they have a self-interest in those fines, fees, and proceeds from legal settlements without going through the formal appropriations process, avoiding congressional oversight. And that's what all of this is really about, congressional oversight and responsibility. Now, if this is signed into law, the legislation would help restore Congress's role in overseeing how money is spent. 
You see, the Constitution has this pesky little provision that Congress has the power and the responsibility to direct spending of federal dollars. The power of the purse is one of Congress's most uh, potent tools for controlling bureaucracies, and they have uh, ceded that power to bureaucracies as we know them today. So uh, three bills, Senator Mike Lee, and we'll uh, follow those uh, as they make their way, presumably first through the House and then uh, may or may not make their way through the Senate. Well, the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation joined 42 other groups in a letter to President Trump encouraging him to keep his campaign promises and withdraw fully from the Paris Climate Treaty and to stop all taxpayer funding of U.N. global warming programs. And the letter explains why they think that should be the case. The letter not only makes a clear argument for withdrawal from the agreement, but also discusses the options by which that withdrawal can be accomplished and recommends the best path forward. Now, the Cornwall Alliance for Stewardship of Creation seeks to magnify and glorify the God of Creation, First of all, by acknowledging that he is the God of creation, the wisdom of his truth and environmental stewardship, the kindness of his mercy in lifting the needy out of poverty, and the wonders of his grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a coalition of theologians, pastors, ministry leaders, scientists, economists, policy experts, and committed laymen to Cornwall Alliance, the world's leading evangelical voice promoting environmental stewardship and economic development built on biblical principles. So it's an impressive group. I follow uh, what they write quite often. And uh, their letter simply says this. I might be interrupted as I begin, but I'll just read some of the highlights. We, the undersigned, write in enthusiastic support of your campaign commitments to withdraw fully from the Paris Climate Treaty, and to stop all taxpayer funding of U.N. global warming programs. We are heartened by the comments you made at your 100-day rally in Harrisburg and agree that this treaty is not in the interest of the American people and the U.S. should therefore not be a party to it. Now, you'll recall we had an uh, interview earlier this week that called upon the president uh, to let the U.N., the international body, know that treaties have to be ratified by the U.S. Senate. That's what the Constitution requires. We know that the Senate would not ratify the Paris tra- uh, Climate Treaty. That's why President Obama moved forward without the the uh, consent of the U.S. Senate or the ratification of the U.S. Senate. So this is another element of that effort uh, to bring accountability, to rein in uh, the executive in this area. Now they go on. Without, uh, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Treaty is an integral part of your energy agenda. The Obama administration's nationally determined contribution to the P- Paris Climate Treaty commits the United States to take actions that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 17 percent below 2005 levels by 2020 and by 26 percent to 28 percent below 2005 levels by 2025. Paris then requires a more ambitious uh, NDC every five years in perpetuity. Uh, the, the goal is ultimately to eliminate fossil fuels altogether. Eighty percent of the world relies upon them, but it, es- it establishes the somewhat arbitrary standards uh, in perpetuity. The letter goes on. The NDC cites specific policy undertaken by the Obama administration as part of the NDC. These include the greenhouse gas emissions rules for existing and new power plants, corporate average fuel economy standards for vehicles, methane emissions rules for the oil and gas sector and for landfills, and energy efficiency and conservation standards for building and appliances. Environmental pressure groups and several state attorneys generals have begun to prepare lawsuits in federal court to block withdrawal of the clean 
power plan and other greenhouse gas rules. One argument that they have already put forward is that these rules cannot be withdrawn because they are part of our international commitment under the Paris Climate Treaty. Failing to withdraw from Paris thus exposes key parts of our direct deregulatory energy agenda to unnecessary legal risk. The AGs revealed in this uh, in a recruiting letter that they also plan other lawsuits ensuring that the promises made in Paris become reality. Now, some officials in your administration are relying on recent statements from former Obama administration officials that the U.S. can withdraw its NDC and submit a new NDC that makes far less ambitious commitments to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The clear language of Article 4 of the Paris Climate Treaty contradicts that claim. In other words, we do not have the latitude that's being claimed. Section 11 states a party may at any time adjust its existing nationally determined contribution with a view to enhancing its level of ambition. Even if the U.S. were to be cleared by U.N. officials to submit a less ambitious NDC, this is not the end of the threats posed by the Paris Climate Treaty. We're going to stop here, but I want to share a couple of additional things that this group and many others signed on to as presented to the president and what they suggest are the solutions uh, to... uh, Uh, to withdrawing and what should take its place. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 22 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, in fact, next segment, we're going to talk with Jeremy Dice, Senior Counsel for First Liberty Institute. We're going to talk about developments in two major religious liberty cases that's coming up uh, next, we're talking about uh, 42 groups that have signed on to a letter to the president regarding the Paris Climate Treaty. And in addition to uh, pointing out that there are not provisions in it to make the kinds of changes that would allow uh, authorities in the United States to make decisions that are in the best interest of the United States, environmental and otherwise, uh, they also offer um, uh, some suggestions on how they might Uh, how the president might respond. First, they write, you could submit the Paris Climate Treaty to the Senate for its advice and consent with a recommendation that the treaty not be ratified. Submitted the treaty, uh, rather submitting the treaty to the Senate would return us to and restore the proper constitutional method for treaty making and require a future administration to go through proper procedures if it were to attempt to rejoin the treaty. And there are some some strictures there that are very dramatic and the Senate should weigh in. Uh, we uh, understood under the previous administration, and I, I would guess under the current, that the Senate would not ratify. Second, you could withdraw from the underlying U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change. The, this action would also achieve your commitment to stop all payments to the United States tax dollars uh, to U.N. global warming programs, including the Green Climate Fund, which is a part of the UNFCCC. Third, you could announce your intention to withdraw the U.S. from the, the uh, Paris Climate Treaty according to the four-year schedule specified in the treaty and continue that process of repealing the regulations that the previous administration submitted as part of the uh, the NDC. Well, it goes on from there. Uh, among the signatures, I mentioned uh, certainly the Cornwell uh, the Cornwall Alliance, but to others, and this is not an exhaustive list, there are 42 organizations, uh, the Committee for a Constructive Tomorrow, the National Center for Public Policy Research, Energy and Environment Legal Institute, uh, Hispanic Leadership Fund, Science and Environment Policy Project, Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change, the CO2 Coalition, um, the Alliance for Wise Energy Decisions, uh, the Center for Energy Competitiveness, uh, Rio Grande Foundation, and uh, others as well. You can find out more about that in this effort 
uh, from the Cornwall Alliance on their website. And to learn more about um, their stewardship for creation emphasis um, that is outlined on their website as well. Well, we've learned that the U.S. military launched fresh airstrikes against pro-Assad troops in Syria after they ignored repeated warnings from both coalition and Russian forces. Uh, We've learned today the Syrian forces in several vehicles, including at least one tank, were near the Jordanian border, deemed a threat to coalition partners on the ground. According to the Pentagon, they were repeatedly ordered to stop their advance toward a de-escalation zone, but ignored the warnings. The coalition commander assessed the threat and after Shows of force didn't stop the regime forces, and those forces refused to move out of the deconfliction zone. The commander on the ground called for the airstrike as a matter of force protection, according to a senior U.S. defense official. Another military source told the Associated Press that it appeared the Syrian forces were poised to attack an area that included U.S. advisors. They were building a fighting position about 55 kilometers from a U.S. coalition base close to uh, the area where advisors from Uh, train, rather, members of the Syrian Democratic Forces and Syrian Arab Coalition. Uh, Defense Secretary James Mattis briefly addressed the strike uh, during a meeting with the Swedish defense minister uh, he happened to be in uh, conversation with at the time, saying that we're not increasing our role in the Syrian civil war, but we will defend our troops. And that is a coalition element made up of of, uh, more than just U.S. troops. And so we'll defend ourselves. If people take aggressive steps against us, and that's been uh, going Uh, a going in a policy of ours for a long time. Well, the U.S. and Russia, which is allied with the pro-Assad forces, as you know, have established buffer zones around their separate areas of operation. And that's an effort to avoid collateral damage, in quotes. Each side has agreed to notify the other if the uh, deploy forces within the buffer zone uh, is advancing. In this case, an official said, Russia tried multiple times to contact the Syrian forces. It was at that point that the U.S. and coalition jets escalated their warnings. They did not heed those warnings, and the airstrikes uh, followed. So this was, uh, we are now being told, not an escalation, but simply carrying out what has been the policy for quite some time. Well, you may have missed it, but Mount St. Helens erupted on May the 18th, 1980, after two months of increasing volcanic activity. That was some 37 years ago. I remember I was in Eugene and, uh, and uh, didn't really experience any of the fallout, the ash, or any of that, um, but certainly came home and, uh, from university and discovered much of that here in Portland. Well, since its most recent eruption in 2008, there have been a swarm of earthquakes, which are thought to be the result of the, mag- uh, the magmatic systems recharging, the magma, according to the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. Well, sim- similar seismic swarms were detected during recharging periods before a small eruption in 2004 and through a period of volcanic activity that ended in 2008. In March through May of this year, swarms of deep earthquakes not even felt on the surface have been detected. Well, seismic swarms don't directly indicate that an eruption is imminent because volcanic forecasting is difficult, according to the U.S. Geological S- uh, Survey, and we certainly learned that back in 1980. And that year, um, eruption is widely considered the most disastrous volcanic eruption in U.S. history. It killed 57 people, destroyed hundreds of homes, 57 bridges, some 200 miles of roads, in addition to leveling tens of thousands of acres of forest. Now, that eruption sent an ash cloud more than 12 miles into the atmosphere in just 10 minutes. Uh, Fine ash reached the uh, northeast two days later, circled the earth within 15 days, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. 
The volcano had uh, had been uh, dormant for more than 100 years until seismic activity started to increase in March of 1980. A series of earthquakes caused cracks in the, the snow and ice in the top of the mountain. And on the 27th of March in 1980, ash began to spray from the mountain's peak. I remember seeing that plume, but having no idea what would ultimately result. <coughs> Excuse me. At 8.32 a.m., On the day of the big eruption, a 5.1 magnitude earthquake shook the area and the mountain summit and much of its northern face, uh, the flank collapsed that sent a huge explosion out from the north side instead of a typical eruption from the top. Some 3.2 billion tons of ash spewed into the surrounding area. And according to the U.S. Geological Survey, streets and buildings were covered. The eruption caused an estimated $1 billion in damage. And, of course, the art community taking advantage of this new medium began producing all kinds of crafts that included uh, the ash from that eruption. Mount St. Helens in the Cascades of Washington State um, uh, was the, the scene of much uh, attention, much speculation and concern about those who lived in the area. Over the nearly four decades since that uh, cataclysmic eruption, the Geological Society has noticed signs of recovery near Mount St. Helens. Uh, these signs of regrowth are positive, but they're also a sign of increased seismic activity under the mountain. Mount St. Helens, they say, is at a at normal background levels of activity. This according to a geologist uh, with the Cascade Volcano Observatory speaking to ABC News. But it's a bit out of the ordinary for uh, several small magnitude earthquakes to swarm, as was the case in March to May of 2016, November 2016, and April of the same year, as well as May the 5th of this year. During the April 16th to May 5th uh, swarm of uh, earthquakes, they say they detected well over 100 of them, all with magnitudes uh, below 1.3. Now, they're not uh, suggesting anything is uh, is coming anytime soon, but uh, they uh, maintain a very close watch over these uh, these giants, as is Mount St. Helens, so we can detect the earliest signs of reawakening. The agency sends out weekly updates on seismic activity around the volcano, and uh, Mount St. Helens last erupted in 2008 uh, was insignificant compared, of course, to the devastating eruption in 1980 that took place some 37 years ago today. Up next, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice, Senior Counsel for First Liberty Institute, on two major religious liberty cases that are developing. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, First Liberty Institute is the nation's largest nonprofit that's devoted to protecting religious liberty. And they announced developments in two major cases. Tony Richardson was an educational technician employed by the Augusta, Maine School Department, filed uh, charges of religious discrimination and retaliation with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission after being instructed to never use the phrase um, I'll pray for you or you were in my prayers in private conversations with co-workers. The other case uh, was uh, filed on behalf of uh, client Judge Wayne Mack. Uh, First Liberty asked a Texas federal court to dismiss a lawsuit seeking to end uh, the practice of opening court sessions uh, with an invocation. Well, here to talk with us about that is Jeremy Dice. He's senior counsel for First Liberty Institute. Thank you for joining us and welcome back. Well, thanks for having me again. Well, I appreciate so much the work that First Liberty does and to uh, look at these cases uh, that are becoming far more frequent than they used to be, I think helps put into perspective the challenge that we face. Let's start by talking about the case of Tony Richardson, who apparently 
have the gall to utter the words, I'll pray for you, to a co-worker that happened to attend the same church she did? Yeah, it's a, it's a really surprising case. Uh, Tony is a uh, works in the special needs classroom of her school, and uh, a co-worker was having a difficult time adjusting to that environment. It's the first time he had worked there, and so he was having a hard time. She took him aside after the kids had already left for the day, and in the classroom they were there together and alone. And he, she said, hey, look, I know it's hard, but uh, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And the response was, as you might expect, um, yeah, I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Thank you for doing that. Uh, some time goes by, and uh, Tony finds herself in discussions with the Human Resources Office, and they, they start kind of interrogating her. Have you ever told anybody on campus that you are a Christian? Have you ever told someone things like, I'm praying for you, or use other religious language? And then uh, she, she breaks out the, the news that, I have to tell you, you're in violation of the separation of church and state. Uh, and then she gets a memorandum, a, an official memo from the school district, telling her that if she uses this kind of language in the future, she could face further discipline and or dismissal. Uh, it, it's just so remarkable that no employee should be fired from their job or face discipline of any kind for having a, a private conversation involving religious language with their coworker. Now, as I mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, this coworker happened to attend uh, the same church that she attended at the time the comment was made. There was apparently a later falling out. What was the offense that the, the co-workers suggested um, he had taken uh, because of this comment? And, and I guess the next question would be, what happened next? Well, I don't think there was any offense with the coworker. He, in fact, had, had actually thanked her for saying uh, that he, she was praying for him. What the problem here is, is not anything to do with the coworker. It's everything to do with the school district. And the school district to have the, the temerity to tell one of their employees that they would violate the law and the Constitution for saying words like, I'm praying for you, or that's a blessing, or any other religious language. And then going further into the memo, they explain that expressing any religious viewpoint or any private belief system, as they put it, would be against the law. That is completely backwards from what the law actually is. It protects religious employees at work to be able to have these private conversations, especially when they go to to go to uh, services together on the weekends. Yeah, and as you point out, there wasn't even a complaint involved here. What's the status of this case, and what do you see the outcome ultimately? Well, we filed, as you said at the top, a, a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The EEOC catalogs all these cases of religious discrimination throughout the country. That's their task by Congress to do that kind of thing. And they, they sometimes do an investigation in this matter and have a lot of different things that they can do to, to rectify the situation. Uh, but if it, ultimately, they may just say, you're, you're welcome to go file a federal lawsuit if need be. I, you know, I, I honestly hope it doesn't have to get to that point. Uh, look, the school district here should just simply acknowledge that what they did in counseling her and, and coaching her uh, was wrong, and, and there was no need to, to insert this memorandum, certainly, and, and, or to, uh, to force her, as she has now for the last nine months, to censor her language, lest she be uh, terminated from the, her employment there. Uh, it, they should just get rid of this memo, tear it up, destroy it, whatever needs to be done, and, and let's move on. Now, we're, we would be tempted to think this is an isolated incident, this isn't happening anywhere else, and so... Uh, We can dismiss this as an exception, but are we seeing similar restrictions on uh, expression uh, in public schools around the country? 
Yeah, you know, look, we, we see that whether it's in the public schools or elsewhere. You know, I, I represented a young lady one time who was uh, given some discipline in school because she said, God bless you, to a student who sneezed. Uh, you know, I represented a young lady who was trying to say grace over her, her chicken nuggets at school time and was told that she couldn't pray. She's not allowed to pray in school. We, we represented, co- of course, Coach Joe Kennedy, who was just trying to take a knee in silent prayer after the football game and found himself on the losing end of his job. Uh, so, no, these things are, are going on everywhere. You know, today, the Supreme Court of the United States is considering a, uh, whether or not they're going to take our appeal of Monifa Sterling, who was court-martialed in part because she had a Bible verse taped to her screen, and her executive officer didn't like that. So, I mean, it, these kinds of things are happening, it seems to be, across the entire spectrum, whether that's in the military or in the educational system itself. Now, the other case I mentioned was the case of Judge Wayne Mack. First Liberty has asked a Texas federal court to dismiss a lawsuit uh, that's trying to end the practice of opening the court sessions with an invocation. Now, this is the organization we so often uh, hear about, the Freedom From Religion uh, Foundation. Tell us about this case and what the, uh, uh, the complainants are alleging. Well, Judge Mack here, his his job duties concern a lot of different things, and one of them is especially he has to work as the county court of a coroner. And so he, he sees, let's just put it this way, he sees a lot of bad things. Uh, and he sees people at their most vulnerable. And he thought a while ago that he would start up a, a program that would provide um, some ministry or some, some help and encouragement to these people as they're going through these uh, these, these rough times, uh, doing what a coroner has to do and seeing those things. Uh, and that morphed into a program in which he would have his uh, his sessions of his, uh, his his court open with prayer. Now, he's not even in the room when this is going on, by the way. This is just something that he, he assembled, and he has these interfaith um, uh, chaplains that come in there from I mean, all kinds of different religions that come in and provide these uh, these invocations. But the bottom line is this: Look, if um, if the Texas state legislature and the Texas Supreme Court and the United States Congress and Senate and uh, uh, everything else can have prayer before their public meetings, certainly Judge Mack can open his courtroom with prayer as well. So the complaint has been filed. Um, what's the status on this one? Well, this, the case was filed, of course, by another group against us, and so we have filed a, uh, a motion to dismiss uh, to get that case uh, kicked out of court entirely. Uh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, rather, uh, Judge Mack was uh, a similar complaint was made against him before a judicial body here, and that was dismissed. But during that time, uh, the Attorney General of the State of Texas, Ken Paxton, he weighed in and said, "No, look, this is a constitutional practice, perfectly fine." So he's also intervened on behalf of Judge Mack to defend. His, um, to defend the opinion that he had issued out of his office some months ago. Now, for, for people who experience similar challenges, uh, it may produce quite a bit of anxiety. Tell us a little bit about how your organization, First Liberty Institute, helps those with religious liberty complaints uh, that may rise to the level of lawsuit or at least a challenge. Well, we try to help people by winning. And so we, we like to say that we win 90% of our cases, and that's true. We, we win over 90%, as a matter of fact, of the cases that we get ourselves involved with, because uh, you know these, these are cases that need defense, but that are also, uh, more often than not, if you're just willing to stand up and, and work through this process, uh, you're, you're going to be able to have, I think, a positive result nine times out of ten, as it seems. Uh, but I will say quickly, at the same time, we lose 100% of the cases we never bring. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really proud of people like uh, Tony. Richardson, who's just an average person up in Maine, uh, really, she just didn't know what her rights actually were, and so she called us, and we explained that this is a really egregious violation of the law, 
And she said, well, look, if this is happening to me, I wonder how many other teachers in Maine and my school district and across the country it's happening to them. And so she wanted to very quickly take some action to make sure that uh, at least her, her colleagues there knew what the law was in addition to herself. It just takes a, a faithful witness to be able to say, this is what the law is. This is what the Constitution says. That's how we begin to expand our religious liberty in this country. And I appreciate your mentioning that because for people who have concerns, it's difficult to know, does it uh, does it merit a conversation with somebody from First Liberty Institute? And the the answer is call, talk to somebody, and, and you can determine from there. But don't just assume that, um, you know, I should just have to put up with something we're convinced uh, crosses the line. Yeah, I mean, look, at the very minimum, go to firstliberty.org and, and review all the resources that we have on there. Listen to our podcast that comes out three times a week that it talks more about the story of religious liberty. Uh, read the, the religious liberty toolkits that we have available for you, especially if you're a student or a teacher. We've got an entire kit just for you. Uh, read through those things so that you know what your rights are. And if you have any more questions, give us a call. Fill out the form on our website. We'd be glad to talk to you and see if we can help you out. Well, again, I appreciate so much the work that you do and uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for Thank having me. Thank you so much. Again, Jeremy Dice is a senior counsel for uh, First Liberty Institute. And I wanted to mention, if I have that note here, a little bit more about what they do, because it's uh, it's important to uh, support these organizations that provide the kind of uh, uh, defense uh, necessary for those who are experiencing challenges in the area of religious liberty. Well, I don't have what I hoped I'd have, but anyway, you can check them out online. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back, and we will, you guessed it, wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I remember so vividly when I first heard about the disappearance of Kyron Horman. Uh, just a little kid, he was, um, well, alleged to have been taken to his school and uh, taken from his school. And we really haven't had much detail about what happened to him. There have been very few leads that, that provided information that might ultimately resolve this mystery. But I uh, have followed with uh, great interest in the last few days uh, announcements that that case is still moving forward. And in fact, a grand jury heard evidence in the Kyron Horman case um, uh, earlier today. The grand jury continues to hear evidence in the case, I should say, of the disappearance of this little boy, uh, and they have met several times. Details about the uh, secret panel were described in a letter sent to KGW in response to a public records appeal, and according to that uh, information, the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office continues to impanel and offer evidence before a grand jury for the case of Kyron Horman, meaning both the criminal investigation and legal proceedings are underway. That's uh, what the Deputy District Attorney for Clackamas County wrote in response to that request for information. The Multnomah County District Attorney's Office has confirmed that the grand jury has been convened on multiple occasions regarding the Kyron Horman case. Uh, on Monday, uh, it was reported by KGW in, uh, on the uptick in activity surrounding the Horman case. Well, police recently coordinated ground searches. Detectives are analyzing new computer evidence, and a grand jury remains impaneled to take evidence. The new letter sent to KGW provides uh, detail, in fact, more detail about the uh, the grand jury um, and the uh, the new evidence, um, including confirmation the jury met on several occasions. Kyron Horman, as you might recall, he disappeared from Skyline School on the 4th of June in 2010. 
He has never been found. The boy's stepmother, Terry Horman, has long been the focus of investigation. She denies any involvement, has never been charged in the case. And I hesitate to speculate because that would uh, that would not be fair or right. But nonetheless, that those are the facts of the case. Grand jury hearings are closed to the media and to the public. The secret panel can bring criminal charges or help collect information, which it appears at least that's what they're doing now. Not all cases brought before the grand jury result in indictment, uh, cautioned the uh, Lewis and Clark Law School uh, professor Tang Yen. Uh, the new details about grand jury activity in the Horman case came in light after, rather, came to light after a public records request. KGW requested a Multnomah County Sheriff's Office report into the murder for a higher plot allegedly involving Terry Horman. Uh, her ex-boyfriend said uh, Horman tried to have him killed in Roseburg back in 1990. Well, investigators denied the public record, citing uh, ongoing investigation. Well, the Multnomah County DA's office referred the public record's appeal to Clackamas County to avoid a conflict of interest. And on appeal, Clackamas County upheld the decision to keep the police reports confidential. So that detailed information is not public, but uh, it is um, heartening to uh, consider that they are still working on this case. These reports contain potential evidence, witnesses, information that is helpful for developing leads as to the investigation into the disappearance of uh, young Kyron Horman, according to the uh, uh, the county. The uh, case, uh, the investigation is active and ongoing. And I don't know if you've seen um, images of that have been updated of what he would likely look like now as a much older uh, child. Uh, but nonetheless, I think he'd be 14 uh, if he is living today and there are images of uh, of him uh, and what he might look like at age 14. But it just uh, I'm sure it's true for you, too. It gripped my heart and just grieved me. I know there are billboards that are still up that were put up by his uh, his birth mother. I promise I will find you. I will never stop. And uh, it's signed um, Love Mama and uh, a big picture of his sweet little face. Anyway, I continue off and on to pray for a resolution to this case, and it represents, of course, so many uh, unresolved cases involving children and adults that break the hearts of their family members and others who care about them. Well, they tell us uh, that for the next few days, we should open the windows, break out the sunblock, at least those of you who need sunblock. Sunshine has returned to Portland. This isn't just a fleeting moment, but it's going to be with us for a little while. There's plenty of sun in our seven-day forecast, and temperatures are expected to top. (laughs) They're going to top out near 90 on Tuesday. This is more welcome news, at least to those of us in Portland, um, the absence of rain, of course, is also great news. Well, the forecast holds the seven-day beginning Thursday. It's going to mark the first week-long stretch Portland has seen without precipitation since mid-September of 2016. Think about that for a moment. Try at last. Uh, Thursday, the high um, reached around 68. Friday and Saturday, the highs will be in the 70s and 80s. And next Uh, The next two days, well, it's going to be way warmer. The warm temperatures won't be isolated in the Portland area either. A high temperature, or rather pressure system, is uh, sprawling across the northwest and into Canada. That's going to bring a region-wide warm spell next week. It's definitely going to feel like summer for a couple of days, even though we're still in spring. Uh, Even more so, considering Portland especially uh, having a wet year, in fact, the wettest um, so far, the stretch between October 1st of 2016 and Tuesday was the second wettest in Portland history, at least as long as records have been kept. 47.76 inches of precipitation was recorded at Portland International Airport during that stretch, falling slightly short of the 48.51 inches uh, recorded um, 
at the airport between October 1st of 1996 and May 16th of the following year. Well, Portland has experienced the most wet days ever with 145 days of uh, rain since October 1st of 2016. And don't we know it? Well, the rising temperatures, the dry days come on the heels of a springtime snow shellacking on Mount Hood. Timberline Ski Area reports 19 inches of new snow in the past 72 hours as of this morning. And farther south in the Cascades, Mount Bachelor reports seven inches over the past three days uh, near the top of Sunshine Express chairlift. A more pressing concern is the uh, uh, appeal to uh, uh, of cold water during these very hot days to come on warm spring days. River temperatures are still in the 40s and 50s, very cold. It may feel good for a, a moment or two, but temperatures that low can quickly bring hypothermia. So be very careful. Resist that temptation to get in the water or at least... Uh, to uh, to get out into the water where hypothermia might make it difficult for you to get back uh, to shore. So keep that in mind. Tomorrow is Friday, so we're going to do Friday fun stuff. So I hope you'll join us for that. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and we'll talk again tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.